Good morning, church. We're going to be reading from 1 Peter this morning, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Walter Houston, described by family members as a devoted Christian, died Monday after waiting 70 years for God to give him clear direction about what to do with his life. He hung around the house and prayed a lot, but just never got that confirmation, his wife Ruby said. Sometimes he thought he heard God and his voice, but then he wouldn't be so sure, and he'd start the process all over again. Houston, she says, never really figured out what his life was about. But he felt content to pray continuously about what he might do for the Lord. Whenever he was about to take action, he would pull back because he didn't want to disappoint God or to go against him in any way. Ruby says he was very sensitive to always be remaining in God's will. That was primary to him. Friends say they liked Walter, though he seemed not to capitalize on his talents. Walter had a number of skills that he never got around to using, says longtime friend Timothy Burns. He worked very well with wood, and he had a storyteller side to him, too. I always told him, take a risk. Try something new if you're not happy. But he was too afraid of letting the Lord down. To his credit, they say, Houston, who worked mostly as a handyman, was able to pay off his mortgage on the couple's modest home. In the Christian life, there is a battle of the wills. My will 
and God's will. And as the Christian grows, we desire to know God's will more and more in our lives and for our lives. But herein lies the problem. Because we often seek God's will, but we don't know if we've found it. We could be like Walter and be paralyzed into doing absolutely nothing all under the guise of waiting for God to reveal his will. Or we could be like the person who does whatever they want and then just sort of say, well, it must be God's will. Or somewhere in the middle. And when we talk about God's will, we acknowledge that there is a hidden will of God and then there is a revealed will of God. That which we cannot know and that which he shows us very directly. And today in 1 Peter, we explore how God reveals to us and leads us in this life through what he has already told us to do. And the truth of the matter is this, that if you want to know God's will for your life, God has already given you a major, major piece to what his will for you looks like. If you want to know God's will for your life, you need to know that his will for you will almost always be something different than you would plan. (laughs) That his will for you might be something that you don't choose for yourself. And that's where verse 1 takes us in 1 Peter chapter 4. When we think about navigating life, and when we think about navigating suffering in this life, which is something that Peter's been talking a whole lot about to this point, he continues to bring us back to Jesus as our example for doing that. And we see right there in verses 1 and 2, look at it with me. He says, Since therefore... Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of time in the flesh no longer for the human passions, but for the will of God. To live in the flesh for the will of God. He says if you are going to imitate Jesus in this life and be faithful to him, this is how you live. You live to follow God's will. And the idea of following God's will is the next logical expression to the larger point that Peter's been talking about so far over the last number of weeks in this book. If you remember back with me earlier, the last chapter or chapter and a half, there's been a lot of conversation about suffering and submission and and standing fast in difficult times. And we might summarize the logic to be something like this. Even though, Christian, you're suffering for your faith, you can truly love life by doing good and blessing others because you know that if God himself is for you, then those who are causing your suffering will ultimately be put to shame. And in fact, Jesus himself has suffered and already won victory, and the victory that has been proclaimed in the spiritual realm, the victory that is proclaimed in the physical realm by people putting faith in him and being baptized. So even though life is difficult, pursue God's will. That's the logic. 
of 1 Peter 2 through 4. And Peter tells us that in pursuing God's will for our lives, there's a commitment that we make, and it's a commitment to, as he says, arm yourselves in the same way of thinking. It's a commitment of resolve. That's what resolve is, isn't it? And the imagery is vivid. To arm yourself for something. It's to prepare yourself for battle, isn't it? And battle is almost never pleasant. It's almost never something that you would choose. And yet, you arm yourself in this way of thinking to be prepared, to have the right expectations, and uniquely to arm yourself in thinking that part of God's will for you might be for you to suffer. And it seems to me that when we think about that, when we think about life and we think about suffering, we think about God's will and we think about our desires, and we think about trying to figure out how all these things work together, it seems to me that our expectations play a really significant role part of this equation. Because I don't know about you, but I know just for myself, as I think about how I was reared in the Christian life and what I've come to expect as living in the Western world in this time in history, that I think most Christians in the Western world expect our lives to be lived with ease, (laughs) with comfort, with health, and with acceptance. And if you expect your life as a Christian to look like that, then it can make it really hard to accept God's will for your life if it's anything but that. Historian Daniel Borstein suggests that Americans suffer from all too extravagant expectations. In his much-quoted book, The Image, Borstein makes the observation of Americans. He says, we expect anything and everything. We expect the contradictory, and we expect the impossible. We expect compact cars, which are spacious. Luxurious cars, which are economical. We expect to be rich and to be charitable, to be powerful and to be merciful, to be active and yet to be reflective, to be kind, but also to be competitive. We expect to eat and to stay thin, to be constantly on the move and ever more neighborly, (laughs) to go to a church of our choice, and yet to feel its guiding power over us, to revere God and to be God. Never have people been more the masters of their environment. Yet never has a people felt more deceived and disappointed. For never has a people expected so much more than the world could offer. Friends, if you expect to go through life with comfort and ease and acceptance as a follower of Jesus, then you need to know this. Your expectations are skewed. Because... Throughout the entire history of Christianity, the global church, the historical following of Jesus has not been easy. It's not been comfortable. And it has not been without suffering of some kind. 
And so Peter says, arm your mind. Be resolute. I will embrace the will of God for my life, no matter what it looks like or what it feels like. There's another thing worth considering in verse 1. I wonder if you noticed it. We see this peculiar phrase. Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Did that cause a little question mark to pop up in your mind? What on earth does that mean? Well, Peter's not saying that Christians who suffer will be purified of their sins, that Christians who suffer will live a sinless life. Instead, I think what he's saying is is that your willingness to suffer for the gospel in this life is a sign that sin has no victory over you. People who live to please themselves don't willingly embrace suffering. They avoid suffering at all costs. They even avoid suffering if it causes them to sin. They will sin all the more just to avoid suffering. But for those who embrace suffering for the gospel as God's will, that person will embrace this suffering, but they will not bend to their sinful desires because above all, what is most important to them is that they please God with their life, that they live in his will, that they enjoy him more than they enjoy their circumstances. And that's what he goes on to describe in verses 3 through 6, how living for God's will looks. And it means, according to Peter, that you turn away from human passions that you had before you knew Jesus. Look at it with me. He says, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do living in sensuality and passions and drunkenness and orgies and drinking parties and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Peter refers to the old life. The old life before faith in Christ, is the one that lives simply to please the body, the fleshly desires, not to know God or to follow the will of God. Before you were a Christian, you lived within the confines of yourself and for yourself and for your ease and for your pleasure and for the ease and the pleasure of the ones that you loved. He describes these sinful activities in terms of sensuality and passions and drunkenness and orgies and drinking parties and lawless idolatry. The picture is one of sexual sin and a lifestyle that is bent toward physical pleasure at all costs. Today, you might use the term partying, (laughs) hooking up, sleeping around, or just generally pursuing the things that please you the most physically. But you need to know, Christian, that this is not God's will for your life. This will not lead you into discovering God's will. And if that embrace of the old passions is something that you continue to engage in, you will be regularly and consistently living outside of God's will. 
Because by contrast, what Peter is getting to is that the gospel itself enables you to pursue God's will by living God's way. And he says when you live God's way, you can expect the world around you to engage you a certain way. Here's the two costs. They will be surprised at you. They'll be surprised at you at work when you don't do the things that they like to do. (laughs) And they will malign you is the other cost. Not only will they be surprised that you don't like to do the things that they like to do, but they will think less of you for it. But this shouldn't be a surprise. Jesus himself, after all, said in Luke chapter 6, verse 22 and on, Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For their fathers did so to the prophets as well. The gospel, the gospel enables you to pursue God's will. And it does so by helping you to live God's way. So we go through life and we think to ourselves, I want to know what God's will is. And we almost always think about this in terms of our personal circumstances. I want to know what God's will is. Should I make this business decision or not? Should I marry this person or not? Should I buy this house or not? And sometimes God, by his spirit, nudges us and helps us. But here's the freeing application of this for you. When you don't sense what God's will is for a particular situation, you need not be paralyzed. God doesn't always reveal his hidden will, but he has a revealed will. If you don't know what God's hidden will is in each circumstance of your life, you will still know how to live. (laughs) That's what Peter is getting at here. No matter what life looks like, no matter how hard it is, you'll still know how to live in the revealed will of God. For this is why the gospel was preached, verse 6, that even though, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way that people are, they might live in the spirit the way that God does. The gospel enables you to pursue God's will by living God's way. And that brings us to verses 7 through 11. What does it look like to engage this will of God? Well, there's a big together component of it. He says that the end of all things is at hand. And then he gives four exhortations to the Christian. He says, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. He says, verse 8, keep loving one another earnestly because love covers a multitude of sins. Verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's grace. How do you live in God's will? I don't know what God wants me to do. 
How do I glorify God with my life? You do these things. <laughs> I think so often we overcomplicate this equation. When he tells us very plainly, live in God's will, run away from the old sinful passions, and do these really godly things. And his hidden will will emerge among you as you function in his revealed will. This is how God is glorified in your life, verse 11. This is how you live in his will, verse 2. This is how you live in the spirit, verse 6. These are the marks of someone who's been empowered by the gospel, someone who recognizes Jesus as king, someone who understands that life is not merely about comfort and entertainment and what I can get for myself, but that I'm part of something much, much bigger than myself. You don't need to overcomplicate this. If you want to walk in God's will, then do this. Do the things that he tells us to do. And so he says, be self-controlled and sober-minded. And this has important benefits. He says it's for the sake of our prayers. That's interesting, isn't it? Self-control in many ways is a mark of a Christian. Daniel Webster once said that liberty exists in proportion to restraint. You might say that in modern language to say true freedom exists in proportion to self-control. Church father Tertullian in talking about self-centeredness and self-control once said, he who lives to the benefit of himself confers on the world a benefit when he dies. And Martin Lloyd-Jones a famous British preacher said, the difference between the Christian and the non-Christian is that the former controls his temperament while the latter is controlled by it. Christians are called to be clear-thinking, to be sober-minded, to be not the types of people who just look for the weekend to escape or to get home at the end of the day and shut their minds off. And when you look at your prayer life, you will catch a glimpse of your self-control. Are you growing in self-control or are you not? And as the end of the age is upon us, Peter says, Christians are going to be the type of people who are marked by being on their knees in prayer and dependence upon God for their every need. This is living in God's will. And this is living God's way. The last three exhortations are others directed. We live out God's will together. He says it happens through loving and throwing, showing hospitality and through serving one another. You'll notice that all three of those things are never directed at the self. They're always directed at other people. They require actually others as an object. This is living in God's will. This is living God's way. And so I want to close this morning by just focusing on just one of those three that's so highly underrated today. And that is the ministry of hospitality. Hospitality 
is a friendly reception of guests or strangers very often into your home. Hospitality in our time for many has been forgotten. And many of us have forgotten how to exercise meaningful and godly hospitality to other people. But you want to know what? It's not too late to start. Sometimes people ask me how they can get plugged into a church the size of Old North. Because it's really hard when there's so many people to get to know people and to go to the next level of meaningful relationships. And I always, I always ask them the exact same thing every time. Number one, are you in a growth group? And number two, when is the last time you invited somebody over to your house for coffee, for dessert, for dinner? In her book, Openness Unhindered, Rosaria Butterfield reminds us that the point of hospitality in the home is fellowship. It's not entertainment. It's not eating. It's not to present yourself a certain way at a certain time. When you ask somebody over to your house, when you exercise hospitality, what you say is, would you like to come over this week for a coffee or for dessert or for dinner? And what they hear is, I'm worth enough to put effort into. Butterfield elaborates and she says, don't let pride stop you from opening your home. Ignore the cat hair on the couch or in the mac and cheese. It likely won't kill anyone as decisively as loneliness will. Add as much water to the pot to stretch the soup. And if you run out of food, make pancakes and put the kids in charge of making that meal. See how much fun that is. And know that someone is spared from another humiliating fall into internet pornography because he is instead walking with you and your kids and dogs as you share the Lord's Day. One model of how the Lord gives you daily grace and a way of escape. Know that someone is spared the fear and darkness of depression because she is needed at your house on the Lord's Day, the day she is never alone, but instead safely in community where her place at the table is needed and necessary and relied on. Know that someone is drawn into Christ's love because the Bible reading and the psalm singing that come at the close of the meal include everyone. And that it reminds us that no one is scapegoated in this Christ-bearing community. Know that host and guest are equally precious and fragile. And that you will play both roles throughout the course of this life. The doors here are wide. They must be. Friends, I want to challenge you to start. <laughs> All you have to do is to start somewhere. 
opening your home, opening your life to other people, and see how God uses it as you walk in his will by walking in his way. I hope that you're growing in your desire to have God's will be done in your life. It isn't always easy. To have God's will done in your life is almost never what you would choose it to be. You can't control it. It might even include suffering. But there is nothing like it. The gospel enables us to walk in God's will by living God's way. May it be said of you, may it be said of me, and may it be said of our church. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you and we love you. You make things known to us and you're clear about how you want us to live, what your will is. I pray that you would help us to walk in it faithfully today. For the sake of your son, for the sake of our good, for the sake of the others around us, may you receive glory and honor and praise. Amen.